This is the Comparative Media Studies and Writing Podcast. I'm Andrew Whitaker, the Communications Guy for CMSW. Just want to say thanks as you join us for our first event recording of 2018. We'll jump right in. The voice you're about to hear is that of Eric Klopfer. Eric's a professor who's worked with us for many years, but last year officially joined us as a member of our faculty, as he says here. You can check out more about him at cmsw.mit.edu. And for now, enjoy the talk. and I recently switched those appointments so that CMS is my primary appointment and um, DUSP is my secondary appointment um, and I'm excited about that switch uh, being with other folks who are thinking about media um, uh, in our case specifically for learning. Um, uh, a little bit about my background uh, so I actually I, my background involves neither CMS nor DUSP nor um, teacher education <laughs> I'm a biologist by training. Uh, I did my undergraduate and graduate degrees in biology. I uh, did a lot of work on modeling of uh, computer modeling of biological systems uh, and got interested in lots of simulations for, um, uh, for, for, for research use. Um, sometime during my PhD work, I had one of my committee members who was looking at my research and said, oh, wouldn't it be great to do some of those simulations in my class? Um, so I started getting use, in, interested in the use of educational simulations. Uh, and then uh, taught in the public schools for a little bit, did a postdoc in education, uh, and then when I came here, I was here for a few years and um, uh, met uh, Kurt Squire, who was working with Henry Jenkins at the time, starting up um, the Games to Teach program, which was the early days of educational gaming here at MIT, and they were looking for collaborators, and I was in the nearby space of educational simulations. Um, around, this was around 2000, 2001, um, and have kind of been doing educational games ever since then. So that's a little bit about me. Um, uh, today I'm going to talk about one part of my work, which is about augmented and virtual reality. Um, I'm going to, I, did, I called out Dan originally um, for walking in at the last minute there, uh, but I will say that that whole row there, Meredith and Annie and Dan, um, are all working on the um, virtual reality project that I'll be talking about in this for the second half of the project here. So um, some, some questions you may direct at them instead of me. Um, they also helped prepare some of the presentation as well. Uh, so I'm going to talk about this. Um, I, I, mentioned, um, I mentioned that I'm in CMS, um, but I run, uh, my main home is the teacher education program and the education arcade. Um, the teacher education program is my um, teaching part, uh, which prepares MIT teachers, MIT students who want to be teachers, and the education arcade is where we do a lot of our research. Um, I'm also the co-director of the, um, the PK-12 part of JWell. I don't know if any of you have heard of JWell, but it's the new Jameel World Education Lab here on campus. Um, which is trying to build a consortium at PK-12, uh, higher education and workforce learning um, around sort of global issues in education and learning. Um, and I co-direct with Angie Belcher the PK-12 portion of that. Um, I do use some acronyms because we're at MIT and in academia, um, so I like to do those things. So I often call um, the teacher education program a STEP um, <laughs> and the education arcade, we call it T, uh, just to save me one syllable or two um, each time I say those things. So step and T, there, I just saved some syllables just there, just now. Uh, what do we do there? So um, the main thing we try to do is enable playful and meaningful learning experiences um, using the affordances of new technologies. Uh, so uh, you know, trying to come up with a sort of all-encompassing uh, um, term that captures everything that we do, I think that's probably closest to it. 
Um, so uh, it doesn't say games particularly within that space there, but games sort of fall out as one of the things that we do within there. Um, and certainly the sort of exploring things like augmented and virtual reality go back to the very roots of, of the program itself. Um, we do things like design and create experiences, we implement and scale experiences, and we develop capacity for more experiences. Um, so a lot of that has to do with working in real environments around real kinds of problems, uh, and that's a really important part of what we do. Um, we start with sort of this process of designing and creating experiences. Um, that in itself is grounded in sort of um, real problems that real people face in real classrooms. Um, together, this sort of process makes um, what we know as design-based research. Um, design-based research is the process of, of looking at some of those uh, really practical problems and coming up with solutions for those. Um, I don't know if any of you know the sort of process of design-based research, uh, but it starts with an analysis of practical problems. Um, so we, rather than sort of being driven as, as some um, uh, education programs are by sort of, sort of theory, we're driven by real practical problems that people face um, either in classrooms, out of learning, out of classroom context, informal education, wherever that may be. And we develop potential solutions to those problems. Uh, we iteratively test and redesign in practice. Um, so I think that's probably the, the, time, the step that we spend the most time in. And there's many iterations um, working within this process here. Um, so we look at real practical problems. We try to identify solutions to those. We try to test them out as soon as possible. So it might be with a student from a class. It might be with a teacher from a class. It might be with a group of students in an after-school setting. Um, but we really try to try those things out really early on. Um, and we keep iterating on those. And finally, the last, plus, the last step is to reflect, to distill design principles. So the idea is even though we're trying to sort of solve practical problems and, and in real places, we do want to uh, uh, kind of distill some design principles that we can apply in other contexts. So we don't want to have to solve a problem from, uh, from scratch each time. We want to contribute to the sort of intellectual community, and we also want to contribute to this community of solutions to those problems. So that's design-based research. That's what we do. All right, so what I'm going to talk about today, um, I've already talked about some of the goals that we have in our program. Um, I'm going to talk about learning games and resonant games. Um, so this is sort of the basic design principles we have within our lab for designing educational games. Uh, I'm going to talk about mixed reality and specifically the technology affordances for learning um, and game design through, uh, through different kinds of mixed realities. Uh, and then I'll talk first about augmented reality, um, which has two parts in itself, um, sort of playing augmented reality games and making augmented reality games. Uh, and then I'll talk about virtual reality, uh, specifically the uh, project we have called Clever. All right. So if any of you have seen me talk before, um, some of these initial slides will be familiar. Um, but I do like to sort of set a context for the kinds of uh, gaming that we sort of think about within our lab. Um, so oftentimes when people think about gaming, and they think about this kind of excitement that people are having, so that people are, must be having fun all the time, throwing their hands in the air, having fun. This is what, game, the, this is what gamers must look like um, in practice. Um, but in fact, um, really this is actually from a photo essay. This is no longer online, but I, I got them when they were still online. Um, this was a photo essay that somebody did of Faces of Gamers. So they actually had people playing games, video games, um, and these were actual um, captures of their faces as they were playing those games. Um, similarly, um, this is my own daughter, um, who was probably about nine at the time at PAX East. Have any of you been to PAX East? A few of you. PAX East is a big, um, you know, tens of thousands of people gaming conference here in Boston. Um, those people are literally twice her size. <laughs> She's a shy kid, um, and she has like no idea that they're around. She is just sort of immersed in this in this game in front of her. Um, and it's what people call sometimes pleasant frustration. Um, that's what gaming is about. Or um, as Seymour Papert coined the term, um, it's about hard fun. 
The idea is that you wrestle with some sort of challenging problems within a game. There's some obstacles that you need to overcome. And the satisfaction, the fun, comes from overcoming those obstacles. Um, as, as gaming has often been defined, sometimes those are actually unnecessary obstacles. That's what makes it a game as opposed to some part of life. Um, but that's really what gaming is about. That's what the joy of gaming is. It's about sort of establishing those hard problems, allowing people to overcome those problems through learning. Um, and that's what we try to establish in our game design. Um, I have a, a series of principles that I think about that specifically structure that game design um, and that make further situations that I think that can lead to, to those kinds of um, pleasant frustrations. Uh, the first of those is interesting decisions. And this is Sid Meier's uh, term that he coined uh, a number of years ago. Sid Meier designed Civilization, the Civilization franchise, uh, sort of a world conquest game. You have a sort of a world map, and there's different civilizations, as the name may imply. Um, on this map, you are operating one of those civilizations, and your goal is actually to do one of many things that I'll get to in a second. But the key is interesting decisions. Um, and those are interesting in the fact that they are not simply like heads or tails on a coin. Um, but rather, there's some information you have coming into this that helps you make that decision and think about um, what the possible consequences might be. Um, so the, the follow-up to that is that there's consequences to those decisions. They could be positive or negative. You could be rewarded or punished based on the kinds of things that you do um, based on your decisions. Some sort of clearly defined goals. Um, so I mentioned the case of civilization. Um, I certainly make the, the word plural here, that it's goals, plural. Uh, because in a good game, there's actually many different things you might pursue. So for example, in Civilization, you can win by um, taking over the most land in the world. You can win by winning the space race. You can win by sort of having your culture spread all over the world. Um, each one of those is a different way to win the game. And good games sort of have different ways of sort of pursuing those different kinds of goals. Uh, and that way, different players can play differently, or the same player can play differently on different kinds of days. Um, visible, measurable feedback, so some sort of quantifiable outcome or outcomes. Um, sometimes people think about this as score, and in many cases um, we sort of think about the uh, state of gamification where people sort of take everyday activities and give you points for those things, call it a game. Uh, and um, uh, that's not what this is. Um, this is about for providing some sorts of multiple or multiple forms of feedback, uh, and those feedback are for real accomplishments that you're doing in some sort of context. So it might be about the um, your score, but it could also be about your health in the game, it could be about your wealth in the game, it could be about the gear you've collected, the number of friends you have in your network. All those things are things that different people might value in different kinds of ways, and different players can think about those as, as uh, things that they can measure themselves against. And finally, there's some sort of underlying model or system or a coherent set of rules. Um, so in board games, these are like the, the books that you get at the beginning that describe the sort of dynamics for the world um, based, on the, based on the rules of that space. Uh, in many cases, in the cases that we're doing in a lot of STEM games, um, these are underlying simulations that actually govern the way the world, world works. Um, I won't go into this, but rather than sort of saying things are games or are not games in this space, instead I say that things are like they have not very many of these characteristics or they have a lot of these characteristics. And sometimes um, it can be sort of, uh, it's not necessarily the, the box that you get or the, the, the disc that you get or the digital download that you get, but it can be about the context you play it in as well. Um, so that's some of the structure of games. Um, we've been designing educational games, as I said, in my lab for many years. And we've kind of distilled a series of principles that we think that are really great for um, games that sort of resonate with kids um, in real in schools and resonate with teachers, for that matter, as well. Um, and so we have uh, actually have a book that's coming out next month. Um, several people in my lab have, and myself have written called Resonant Games. And it's about these principles. And we have sort of some top-level principles that I'll talk about today. 
And there's a whole bunch of sort of smaller level principles. Um, the first of the top level principles is designing for the whole learner. Um, so the idea here is that um, we think about the, the whole person in this context. So maybe I'm designing a game for a math, uh, an algebra game for a math uh, class in a school. But I have to realize that the fact that that kid is a, a kid in that math class in school, but that kid is also someone who has friends outside of school. They might play sports. They have interest in different kinds of movies. They play other games outside of school or sometimes in school. Um, there's many different sort of dimensions up to this person, and we can't design for someone who's in a, just a, a kid in a math class. We need to think about the whole context in which they live in. Uh, we design for communities. Um, so that means designing for the sociality of learning. Uh, I think this is a really important uh, point here. Um, as we think a lot about educational technologies today, I think the, the big word is personalized learning, or the big phrase is personalized learning, um, which I think in many cases means tailoring learning to an individual child. Um, but we have to realize that that child is in a social context. It's really important that learning is, in fact, social. Um, and we need to make sure that our games reflect that, that they, are, they, have, they have peers, they have um, friends, they have enemies, um, they have networks in school and out of school. We need to think about that. Um, we design for knowledge, skills, and practices. Um, traditionally, educational games have been designed primarily for knowledge. So you need to learn particular math facts, biology facts, history facts. Um, but we think about the skills and practices that people need to learn as well. And in fact, in many cases, um, the knowledge is sort of a cover for us to teach the people skills and practices. Um, the skills and practices are typically more durable um, in the way that we think about those um, being learned. So they might be scientific practices like how do you form hypotheses, or how do you sort of think about and visualize data? Um, those kinds of things are much more durable and transferable, and those are the things that we really care about teaching. Um, but knowledge is important. You can't sort of teach those things in the absence of knowledge, um, so they sort of come along as a package, but you can't sort of teach knowledge without the skills and practices and have it be a valuable experience. Um, how we design for society is the last one. So designing for society means that we think about the, the community outside of the school, outside of the particular learning context. So that might be about um, community issues. It might be about global issues. It might be about um, uh, you know, uh, uh, social issues that these students are involved in. We have to think about all those issues and how those issues ultimately become part of the game and part of the mission of the game itself. So that might be about um, the relationships between the players. It might be the relationships between the players in the world. And it might be about uh, sort of environmental or social issues that those students are engaged in. So what we try to do is we try to um, uh, generate those experiences through some of the affordances of particular kinds of media. Uh, so those things don't necessarily just arise um, in and of themselves. We think about ways that we can enable those things. And we can try to do that through the affordances of, of new media. I'm going to talk today about, uh, about specifically about augmented and virtual reality. And so on this axis here, we have a sort of a um, a long-established sort of mixed reality spectrum here um, from reality on one side of this to virtual reality on the other side of this. So on one side, we have things that are completely non-digital. On this side, we have things that are completely digital. Um, and in the middle, we have all sorts of mixes, and people have thrown around different kinds of terms for some of those things in the middle there, um, augmented reality being one of them. Uh, but this is sort of a long-established spectrum. I add to this sort of a second dimension here, um, which is spatial scale. Uh, and the, so the spatial scale here goes from something like tabletop at the bottom here to landscape scale at the top there um, with different things in between. And, um, and we think about this kind of space as a design space and where we can situate different things within this space and think about what are the sort of kind of learning affordances for putting things at different places in that space. Um, so it could, be, it could be things that are much like reality at the landscape scale. It could be augmented reality at the room scale. 
Um, all these things, some of them are more sort of easy to, to create with, uh, with technologies, other ones are less easy to create with technologies, uh, but each one has its own unique affordances. Um, within the space of, of learning, we think specifically about ways that those ultimately lead to situated learning and embodied learning. Um, situated learning is characterized by being authentic, um, being contextual, and being social. Um, so it's, think of it like you're learning in, inside of some situation. Um, and embodied learning sort of means that you sort of feel like you're sort of inside of some sort of um, uh, learning environment. So that in involves the sort of a connection between the body and the environment that it's in. Um, those things um, also relate to this idea of immersion and presence. I'm not going to sort of get into the detail. There's a lot of uh, controversy around the way these terms are applied. I'm going to sort of um, skirt that today. Uh, but say that we sort of use the ideas of immersion and presence ultimately to drive situated learning um, and embodied learning. There's Justin sending me Manchester. Uh, so that's doing virtual reality uh, as well as augmented reality. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually talk about two sort of spaces within here. I'm going to talk about the sort of um, augmented or lightly augmented as I call it space up here um, at the landscape scale. A lot of work we've done for many years in that space. Um, and then way down here uh, sort of on the opposite side, um, it's, it's virtual reality that's sort of between the room and tabletop scale um, that we've been working on more recently. Um, I'm going to... Someone asked me about this recently, so uh, uh, I had a discussion with this about with Dan. We'll see if you if you like the way I presented this. <laughs> um, so actually, Dan pointed this out to me. Um, virtual reality can take you anywhere. Augmented reality can bring anything to you. And this is the who's someone who's the uh, VP of AR and VR at Google. And I thought this was an interesting way of thinking about the differences between virtual reality and augmented reality. My definition is still. Um, that virtual reality helps you experience new worlds. Augmented reality helps you experience this world in new ways. Um, uh, certainly you can use these, these technologies for other things. Um, I sort of, I, my lens on this is that um, I think when, when, when uh, using the affordances of these technologies to create learning experiences, that virtual reality helps you do this and augmented reality helps you do that. Okay, so I'm gonna start here with some of the work we've done for many years now in the space of augmented reality that's lightly augmented um, in that space up there. Um, this dates back, I mentioned earlier that uh, sort of my, my uh, initial uh, foray into educational games was, was with Kurt Squire, who's now at UC Irvine, and has done a lot of work on educational games for many years. Um, and we were sort of thinking about in the early days of mobile devices, um, and these, this was around, as I said, around 2000, so before smartphones. I'll show you some pictures of the devices we used. We were thinking about the affordances of these new technologies. Uh, the first being portable. Um, you could take it with you anywhere. We now take that for granted. At the time, we did not. Um, social interactivity, so you can interact with other people through your device, or simply the fact that you have a device and you're up and around allows you to interact with other people. Um, context sensitivity, so that's through different kinds of sensors, GPS, location awareness, et cetera. Um, you're connected, um, so the devices are connected to each other and potentially to the internet as well. And finally, there's this sense of individuality. So I have a device in my hand. Um, it's me. It, it represents me in some way um, as I'm using that device. Um, so within the context of augmented reality through mobile devices, um, we've th thought about things like how do we craft uh, real experiences in real places. And um, we want to make sure that we actu actually use the affordances of not only the technology, but of the world that you're in as well, particularly when you're thinking about augmented reality. So we've done a lot of work in zoos and gardens that I'll talk about where we really want to use the, that particular location for what it really is. We want to create deep learning through those spaces, um, and ultimately we want to help kids, um, kids themselves make those kinds of games. Uh, so the first part I'll talk about is playing games, um, and then I'll talk about making games. 
So here's our uh, original game that we developed through Games to Teach here at MIT. Uh, it was a game called Environmental Detectives. Um, the idea of Environmental Detectives was that um, it was originally designed for environmental engineering students here at MIT. They were briefed about some rash of health problems in the community, um, and you were given some tools, some, some augmented reality tools to try to figure out what was going on in the community. Um, you could do things like interview virtual characters within that space, and we had a sort of an underlying simulation of some environmental phenomenon that you could actually use to um, sample different kinds of um, virtual samples within that environment. Um, I mentioned it was originally designed for environmental engineering students here at MIT, so those were students who, this is important, lived in Cambridge, knew, knew something about Cambridge, um, but because the game was sort of interesting and new, we would often sort of ship people to MIT, um, high school students, other college students, so they could play the game here on our campus. Um, and what we found was that for many of the students, particularly the MIT students, um, they came up with really interesting and creative solutions to the problem. It turns out in this game that um, there was, uh, uh, this is fiction, <laughs> but in the game um, there were a whole bunch of chemicals buried in Killian Court uh, many years ago, and those were starting to leak out and affect um, uh, the groundwater in Cambridge. Fiction. Um, <laughs> And um, so the students sort of thought about, well, okay, well, we could sort of extract this, but it would be sort of big and messy, and it would sort of be a flag to, to people of the community that MIT has screwed up. And what would the people rowing on the river think about this issue? What would people sort of driving by on Memorial Drive think about this? Um, is it going to affect graduation? Um, so all these kinds of things that we didn't actually build into the game, but because it was taking place in a real community, people were thinking about many of those issues. When we shipped people to MIT who didn't know anything about Cambridge or MIT, for them, it was just a game about collecting dots. So I showed you the different things you could collect on the screen. All they did was sort of go to different places, collect those things, and sort of move along to the next place. Their solutions were much more, what I'll call, primitive in terms of the way they, way they thought about them. Um, I'd like to say that sort of design has sort of um, vanished, but in fact, in many ways, Pokemon Go is still really about collecting dots. Um, uh, there's really, you, you just go to places, you collect things, there isn't really anything particularly significant about the places you're going to. Yes, there's some sort of historical marker there, but in, in the context of the game, it's, it's an almost entirely irrelevant. Um, so we started with these kinds of technologies I mentioned I'd show you. This is, uh, this is some of the original stuff that we did um, with uh, pocket PCs, as they were called. Um, at the time, um, you could use Wi-Fi or GPS in them, but not both, because why would you need to have both those things in one device? Um, and so it was, it was pretty primitive in the way we did this. Um, you needed a stylus. Um, later on, this was a Bluetooth GPS, a big advance, so you didn't have to plug it in. Um, now we're sort of way far ahead of that in terms of our, of our uh, AR technologies. Um, so we have like uh, these sort of commodity technologies like Android Core, Core AR, iOS, AR kit, which allow you to do much more sophisticated things with much less um, uh, sort of technological overhead. That's starting to lead to what I call collecting dots plus. Um, so if you look at some of the more recent versions of Pokemon Go, there's things like um, it knows where you are in terms of location, so it sort of has the weather play a role in here. Um, in many cases, it uses better AR technology so that it looks like the creatures are really on the ground or um, where they should be as opposed to just simply overlaid on the environment. So it's making sort of slow progress in terms of really trying to integrate the, the real and the virtual. Um, but there are other things like, so Niantic also makes Field Trip, um, which is sort of a much more place-based experience. Um, so it really is about the place. Um, and so that's, uh, there, there's, there's certainly a sort of movement at least in exploring some of that stuff. 
So we make a, a platform called Tailblazer within our lab. Um, uh, this goes back again to that days of environmental detectives. We've had, I think, about three or four different platforms we've created. This is the most recent one. Um, it's a platform for making your own location-based um, augmented reality games. Um, so they're games you deploy on iOS and Android. Um, you can have uh, map-based views. You can have heads-up views in those spaces. Um, so basic kinds of AR things. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've done this in a, a series of different kinds of places. Um, we've done it primarily in zoos and gardens, um, as well as schoolyards. Um, the zoos and gardens, for them, the motivation is to connect the visitors at those places to some of the invisible themes of those places. So in many cases, people go to a place uh, like a zoo, and you see all the great big animals, and you're really excited about that. Um, but for many cases, the zoos actually have a mission of, we're trying to sort of teach people about climate change, or we're trying to teach people about endangered species. A lot of that is sort of invisible to the people who visit those places. So the idea was try to use some of these games to make some of those invisible missions visible. Um, at the same time, the idea is not to detract from looking at the really cool animals and plants in those places. Uh, and so that's the, the balance that we think about in some of our design. Uh, so for, exa for example, uh, we worked for many years and still continue to work to some extent with the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, um, uh, one of the bigger zoos in the country. Uh, the idea is that they're building games about different kinds of themes in that place. I will say that, uh, that what we try to do in these cases is really try to make it um, compatible with the, with the real physical environment. Uh, one of the very early games that we did at the place, I was, um, I was tailing some of the kids who were playing one of our games. Uh, they were playing the game. They had their, their pocket PC in their hand. Uh, they were, there was a big lion that was maybe as, as far away as the front row here, male lion roaring really loud right in front of them. Um, and they were holding their pocket PC trying to watch a video, and they looked up at the line as if to say, can you keep it down? I'm trying to watch this video here. Um, and we knew at that point that we had not sort of made the game sort of compatible with the environment that it's in. It should be able to accommodate for these kinds of serendipitous things that you happen to experience within the environment, or even make the students look for those things, not to take away from them. Um, so we redesigned that game so that wouldn't actually be the case. So there still is video there, but there's a lot of sort of observation within that space. We're trying to really get people to not only see the unseen, but to notice some of the things that they just that they don't really notice very often. Um, another game we did, um, we actually did another game at the Old Sturbridge Village. Um, so just giving you a sense that it's not all it's not all within science and, and engineering that we make these games. Um, this is actually it's, a, it's an historical recreation village about an hour and a half from here, maybe two hours from here, uh, and. Um, in many ways, you would think that a game that takes place on, uh, on your phone in those places might be really incompatible with trying to create an experience that really absorbs you in the, in the historical times there. So um, you know, how does that coexist a game that's on your smartphone with trying to ride around in a stagecoach and look at a blacksmith? Um, so in this case, we made a game that was about um, some of the economic issues um, of the times um, in the 1800s. Uh, and it's again, it's another theme that's invisible in this place. So, trying to really get people to appreciate more than, wow, it's cool that the blacksmith is still here today in this time, and to really get them to appreciate some of the, um, the narratives, the, uh, the sort of social context of the, of the time and place. Um, so that's what we tried to do in this case here, where we made a game about um, those issues. Uh, I'll skip over that slide. Um, but we, I, I'm not going to talk too much about the research here, because um, it's um, we did a lot of qualitative research as well as some quantitative research. This is just applying some of the stuff from, uh, from Old Sturbridge Village, but here's some of the principles that ultimately emerged from that research. Um, the first was to foster social interactivity. Um, so you'll see here kids. So this is actually, um, it's two kids on one device. Um, even though I talked about sort of the individuality, sometimes that individuality is a, is a, is a pair of people. 
Um, and you'll see here in many cases we have that. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for, for doing this. Um, we've done this with devices where they're single for, for each person, um, where we have people in groups of two or three. Um, and in many cases, uh, really having pairs actually is much better. It encourages dialogue. Um, it encourages um, people to maybe actually have a physical map as they walk around this place as well. Um, it encourages um, them to think out loud. And so there's a lot of reasons why we try to think about that design. Um, creating interesting decisions, which is, goes back to Sid Meier. I won't talk much about that. Providing individual agency or pair agency. Um, so the idea is that each person sort of should feel like the experience, they can actually make a difference in this. It's not about sort of walking through a narrative, uh, but it's about making choices. And they might actually wind up in different places. And actually, um, the, the social interaction is not only within those pairs, but when those pairs encounter another pair, um, they sort of say, well, what happened to you? Well, they might have made different kinds of decisions. And they ultimately try to uh, talk about how they did that. And finally, leverage the surroundings, like I talked about in the previous um, example with the zoo. So in addition to, to, to creating games ourselves, our goal is to sort of drive um, both kids to do this themselves. Um, to some extent, also our goal is to sort of make it accessible to places like zoos, gardens, museums, where they can make these games without sort of having necessarily uh, to develop the technology themselves. Um, so we try to make games. Um, some of this is about student voice. Um, it's about creating uh, creative steam, uh, making spaces. Um, it's, in many cases, an on-ramp for programming. Um, and uh, so we use a, a language that's a lot like um, Scratch or App Inventor, a blocks-based language. Um, so this is what it looks like to create a game. Um, so you have a map-based interface where you can drag and drop maps. Um, so they can either be from Google Maps or from ones you bring in your, on your own. Um, I mentioned that because in many cases, you might have, um, uh, you can actually go back in time. And so often, people will bring in a historical map. Um, so you're walking around on a map that actually is uh, shows your current location, but on a historical map, so you can compare what it looked like at the time. Uh, we have an editor here, where you can have different kinds of objects that you put in, into the world. Um, you can have uh, characters, you can have objects, um, and you can have these scripts. Um, that what makes it, that's what makes it a little bit different than some of the other attempts at making some of these tools easy, um, is that rather than just having sort of an object that you can collide into and something pops up, um, there's actual scripts here that sort of make this an interactive virtual world. Over time, we've done this in a bunch of different contexts. Um, ICSI was one which we did where it was about STEM-themed games, kids making STEM-themed games. Um, and then we've had a project with a partner um, called Haunts, which is about kids making games about local history. Um, so that one was uh, in combination with Global Kids. Um, this is some of the stuff that they've done here. Um, they've done a lot of games in New York City, and they've spread this to some other places um, around. Um, so it was about kids really kind of doing research on some of the issues in their communities, trying to actually uncover some of the hidden historical figures in their communities and how they might highlight them, in this case, in, in, in a sort of culturally aware ways. Our big win there was um, we had this person play the game a couple years ago. Anybody know who that is? No? Except for the people who've seen my slideshow before. So it was our, our former first lady. I don't think we're going to get our current first lady to play these games, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but it was a game that she played uh, with these kids who were very proud of their work. Okay, I'm going to switch gears now, sort of going um, from, I was in the upper left-hand quadrant here. I'm going to move now to the lower right-hand quadrant here on some of our work in virtual reality. Uh, and uh, some of our, our work in virtual reality was sort of um, uh, spurred on by this quote. So this was about a school who had gotten some funding to do some virtual reality in their school. 
um, and they were really excited about their work, and they said, instead of playing video games, students will enter a fully immersive and scientifically accurate virtual reality chemistry lab. Okay, it might be okay. Does adding salt affect the boiling point of water? The student would reach out with hand controllers, take a graduated cylinder, fill it with water, measure out the salt, light a Bunsen burner and thermometer, track the boiling point, and then repeat the experiment without adding salt. Have any of you done this experiment without virtual reality? Sure, and somewhere in your, in your, in your chemistry classes or even middle school science classes, you've done something like this. It costs a few dollars to sort of run. Um, salt water is not a dangerous chemical. These are the kinds of things you can do easily without virtual reality. So instead we think about, um, we think about the first part. What we want to do is have kids playing games, doing the things that they can't do in reality. That's what we should be having them do within that space. Um, I will say that sometimes we actually think about virtual reality um, and some of the things we wind up doing, um, while they might be sort of recreating mundane tasks, you can sort of create sort of a new and interesting take on those things and provide a different way that you might do those things that you wouldn't necessarily do in the real world. Um, I think my, my, my shining example of that is in Job Simulator. Um, have, any, have any of you played Job Simulator? It's one of the sort of basic VR games. It's exactly what it sounds like. You're doing super mundane tasks in a sort of somewhat, I call it a dystopian futuristic world because <laughs> you're resigned to doing these really mundane tasks. Um, but what happens is you sort of, you get to be transgressive within this world. So you're sitting at a desk and you have to basically punch buttons on a computer or make coffee or whatever it is. Uh, but you can also like pick up the sandwich and throw it across the room. Um, you can smash the computer. Sometimes when you drop something, it's hard to pick it up. So in fact, there's sort of interesting sort of attention paid to the design of this that makes it um, sort of thoughtful and explorative. And even though it's sort of recreating something that seems like it's uh, uh, really re easy to recreate in the real world, um, it makes it a, an interesting way to interact with it. So within the space of virtual reality, I also think about the way that we sort of use those media affordances to drive immersion and presence um, and create those kinds of um, situated learning and embodied learning. Um, so much like we did in, in, uh, in mobile technologies, I think about these principles sort of driving some of the work that we do uh, in virtual reality and the affordances that they create. So the first one is immersion. Um, you can make the participant feel like they're actually there um, within wherever there is. There could be sort of, uh, could be Mars. Um, it could be uh, you know, Cambridge in the 1800s. Uh, but the fact is that you sort of feel like you're there. Um, there's something about perspective. So you can take the perspective of uh, you know, a, a different person. You can take the perspective of a molecule. You can take the perspective of a planet. Um, but the idea is that you're sort of taking different perspectives within those systems. Um, there's interaction. Um, so I think about this in the case of sort of um, virtual reality um, where you have hand controllers that, are, uh, that you are, are provide natural interactions as well as head uh, movement, usually with many axes um, to provide that sort of sense of interaction. Um, all virtual reality is not like this. Um, the kind of stuff that we're designing for is, um, but it actually creates a lot of tensions in our design. So when you, move, when you remove some of this kind of interaction, what is the limitations on the design that we do? So for example, in some of the mobile technologies, the kind of uh, interactions are a little bit more limited. Um, there's sensations, so you can create a visceral sense of, of being there. So if any of you have done any of those simulations where you stand on the edge of a building, um, it's very hard to, to feel anything but um, uh, vertigo <laughs> um, when you sort of look over the edge there. Uh, and finally, spatial representation. So as you think about ways of representing things in 3D, um, the ways that you can sort of look at those with your head, you can get a visualization of those um, as another uh, affordance. Um, so people have applied this in many different ways. Um, so people have used this um, for empathy. And this is, I think, one of the primary ways that people think about using virtual reality. Um, people have often called virtual reality the empathy machine. 
Um, so people have used this for taking different perspectives of, of, of refugees, of people of different races, so you get a feeling of what that's like. Um, and I think there's a lot of good evidence that this is actually working pretty well. Um, there's there's another, another space where it's really popular is affordances for realism. You present something to a surgeon where they feel like they're actually in that place and they're doing surgery. They get to visualize what's going on. Um, so this is another place where I think people are really um, doing a lot of good work already. Um, as we think about ways that we design, design those uh, uh, media affordances and apply them to design principles, um, we, we've thought about a number of things. Um, so one is 3D structure. Um, so you can think about um, you know, chemicals. You can think about um, biological molecules. And the 3D structure of these is really important and sometimes really hard to represent, as you can see here on a, on a two-dimensional plane. Sometimes even when those things are rotating um, in, in a simulated 3D in a, in a 2D plane. Um, people have done things like this. This is uh, from Stanford. Uh, for again, for doctors to uh, doctors and patients to visualize um, different kinds of things within that space here. In this case, a heart. Um, people have done this for data as well. So thinking about data and ways you can explore data in, in, in three dimensions. Uh, the next one is uh, for collaboration and communication. This is a, something that we're doing in Clever quite a bit. Uh, thinking about ways that people collaborate both within virtual reality and within inside and outside of virtual reality. So this is. Um, this is uh, Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, um, a really interesting game where uh, one person is in virtual reality and they're trying to defuse this bomb here. Um, but the people with the instructions on how to defuse the bomb are sitting there outside of virtual reality. So you're trying to communicate to the person inside of virtual reality. Imagine like every movie you've ever seen where they're saying, cut the blue wire, not the red wire. It's something like that, but in virtual reality. Uh, there's also co collaboration where people are entirely within virtual reality, things like Echo Arena. Um, which is something like um, uh, Ender's Game kind of uh, uh, game where you're sort of uh, floating around in space and trying to collaborate with other people um, to, to compete. Uh, and certainly um, this is why Oculus Facebook is involved in this arena is because they think that social interactions are the sort of future of the internet um, in VR. Um, and so this is why they're investing in this space because they think that people will ultimately spend time here. And this is something that I think people have had visions of for um, decades, if not centuries, of sort of being in some sort of alternate world uh, with other people um, where you're sort of fully immersed within that space. And finally, there's something about systems perspective. This is, I think this is the one that we've, or I've at least sort of resolved the least at this point. Uh, but the idea, we do a lot of work in, uh, in simulations as well still. Um, and, uh, and there's this idea that you sort of have individual agents within some sort of system. Um, they have some sort of rules that they follow and you sort of have oftentimes emergent patterns and behaviors that come from that. Um, and, uh, and people, all people, um, but certainly novices, have a lot of um, trouble sort of reconciling those different perspectives of one thing moving around inside of a system and the system level properties that emerge from that. Um, I think there's something about the way that we can sort of use and represent different kinds of systems within virtual reality that can help people sort of move between those individual and systems level perspectives. Uh, and finally, the last one is scale. Uh, so people have obviously done lots of things both in the physical world and through video and things like that to help people understand different kinds of scales. Um, and this is uh, one of the virtual reality ones that I think the BBC did on, on space. Uh, that was about, uh, you can kind of get a sense of the Earth scale. Um, but in many cases in, in science, the issues of size and scale are really boggling um, to, to novices and maybe even experts as well. As you think about huge spatial scales, you think about very small spatial scales, you think about temporal scales. Um, and we can think about interesting ways we might represent those um, in, uh, in virtual reality. So that's the, one, the system we're focusing on there, cellular scale. 
Uh, so this is clever. Um, as I mentioned, um, the folks there, Annie, um, Dan, and, and uh, Meredith are working on this project much more so than I am, in fact. Uh, we're also working on this with the Game Lab as well. Um, some folks, uh, Philip and Rick, uh, who aren't here now. Uh, it's about cellular, cellular biology. Um, we're developing, we're pilot testing and evaluating, um, which I'll get into some of those stages in a second here. Um, there is certainly lots of stuff going on in virtual reality science games and simulations. Um, this is some of the work that's out there. You can see people, again, sort of focusing on some of those areas I mentioned previously, um, like visualization of chemical molecules, bio, biological molecules, um, systems that we sort of have trouble sort of representing, like the nervous system um, <clears throat> on paper. Um, in fact, we focused on the cell, uh, and, uh, and this, is, uh, this is how we, if, it, if many of you have taken biology, um, this is typically how the cell is represented on the, on the page. Uh, and um, uh, you know, we sort of can represent all the different kinds of organelles that are within the cell, um, but in fact, the actual cell is much more crowded than that, and we don't represent it on that like that for many reasons, one of which was, would be really hard if we put that on the page to sort of differentiate that for a novice. Um, but we think that we can actually use virtual reality to make a lot more of that uh, um, effective. So the idea here is we're trying to use authentic representations, um, we're trying to use sort of real scientific techniques for the ways that people engage within these systems. Uh, and we want to sort of make it fun and engaging for those. Um, we want to limit nausea, obviously, uh, and uh, that should be a, a motto for everybody should have in education, limit nausea. Um, and we want to make it workable in classrooms, and that's, that's, that is a challenge, um, particularly as we think about, I mentioned previously, we have a real um, incentive to try to make it really fully immersive and use hand controllers. Um, the ability to do that right now um, with, uh, means you're sort of connected to some physical device, and even the logistics of how you do that in a classroom, even if you could afford it, becomes complex. Uh, so using authentic t tasks and tools, so thinking about things like different kinds of dye techniques that we can use to represent different kinds of organelles um, and to highlight them is one of the, the things that we've done um, within the game itself. Um, we think about using um, experts. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't remember all their names. You'll have to ask Meredith who all, those, all these folks are. But, uh, but these are folks who we've consulted with around um, really trying to think about how they think about science, how they think about the cell. This is a common theme that we try to do across um, all of our work is um, bringing the perspective of experts. I mentioned earlier that we try to make it uh, solving real practical problems. That means working with real teachers, real um, students, but we also want to work with real experts who kind of have a deep understanding of these systems. Some of that is to sort of think about the ways we represent the system um, on the screen. So what are the ways that they think about the cell? What are the metaphors they use? Um, the other part of that is about what do they find fun? What do they find interesting and, and, and what sort of drives them about this? Um, we often have people come to us and say, you know, we want to teach uh, photosynthesis in class. Um, how do we make photosynthesis fun? And when the conversation starts there, we're sort of like, this maybe not go so may, may not go so well because it's not about making it fun. It's about finding what's fun about that topic. Um, so the experts are the ones who sort of know that they they do this because they're excited about it. Um, so it may be that the novice can't necessarily jump right into that. But the idea is, what are the things that make them excited about it? And how do we make those ideas accessible to novices? Um, the first prototype focused on a few different things. Um, what do organelles look like? Um, what's the true density within the scale, uh, within, this, within the cell? And how do we sort of represent things around relative scale? Um, so part of that comes from some of these experts that we consulted with. It, it involves a lot of looking at real diagrams of cells, um, real visualizations of cells, um, real pictures of cells, and thinking about how we can then represent that um, in 3D through virtual reality. This is really what cells look like um, to, 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 in a much better representation than the typical representation we see in textbooks. Um, so it's jam-packed full of stuff. But on the other hand, we can't 
um, make it like that all the time because you might not be able to see anything at all. So we have to think about how do we represent that in a way that uh, maybe takes advantage of virtual reality but still makes it accessible to people trying to move through that space. Um, relative scale, um, that's, this is an interesting one. We think about different things within, this, within the cell. Those things within the cell themselves are at different scales. Um, so how do we represent that to people? And how do we represent that in a way that sort of makes it um, clear that you're, that, you're moving, that you're moving across scales and not just moving through space um, within virtual reality, um, which, is a, which is another challenge. Uh, we try to resolve that through a lot of play testing. Um, one of the things that we do, I, I mentioned sort of um, uh, limiting nausea, um, but uh, sort of more, more basic than that is how do you make it sort of navigable within this space? Um, there's different ways that we've thought about to do that. Um, so they've, they've named these um, two ways, the Spider-Man way, um, and I'll show some representation of this. The Spider-Man way is where you um, sort of have a, a web that you can sort of bring yourself to a place, and it's also something like teleportation. So you pick a point and you can sort of move to that point that you have. And then there's the holodeck representation, where you have, um, where you're sort of standing still and you can sort of move things around you. Um, so they, they did some testing around this to, to decide what people like. Um, and fortunately or unfortunately, it was almost 50-50, <laughs> which may not be surprising. People preferred doing this in different kinds of ways. Um, and uh, sort of it lends itself to the fact that just like just I talked about having multiple goals, multiple um, senses of feedback within this space, um, games sort of provide different ways for people to sort of participate in that space. And one of those is actually is movement as well. Uh, so this is, uh, this is what it looks like um, inside the cell, moving around. Um, you can see it is much more crowded than the typical representation that we see. Um, there's different organelles. There's my um, pointer um, that, that either in either case is being used for identification, clicking on things, as well as um, for, uh, for transportation, some of those. You have information about some of the things that you're clicking on. Um, ultimately, in this case, um, it's, it's, at this point, it's, uh, it's mostly about exploration. But one of the things that's important to us um, is that it's not simply just an exploration of a cell, uh, but it's an interactive exploration of the cell. So um, what you're going to be done, you're, you're going to be given a task to, um, to diagnose something that's wrong with this cell. Um, and you need to be able to fix that within the cell. So um, there is a sense of having to move around and explore within that space. Um, but there's also the sense that you're actually having to understand the system that you're interacting with and ultimately change that system. I won't go through, this is different kinds of feedback we've gotten along the way. Um, I will just sort of, uh, highlight this one space over here. Uh, Clever is very different from normal depictions of the cell. Um, I've seen uh, organelles before, but didn't realize how crowded the cell is. Not even a 3D animation video of the cell gives you this in-depth look. So it is important to think about the ways that we're sort of using this media to sort of represent the space in a different, fundamentally different way than we do through something like a, a video. Um, there's some really great videos of inside of cells. Um, so, uh, so Clever is, is a continually evolving space. Um, we, I'll say two things about it. So one is um, this particular instantiation around cells um, is, is moving forward and we're trying to get into classrooms. Uh, but we're also sort of thinking about this as a more general kind of platform for understanding the ways that we can create uh, collaborative learning experiences within, uh, within VR um, for school. So this particular one is about, um, is about biology, but we've also thought about ones in other domains as well. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's mostly what I have to say here. Um, I, again, I've talked sort of about these kind of two spaces here. There's lots of other people doing some interesting research in other spaces within this mixed reality and, and uh, at different kinds of scales. Um, and I think as we start to flesh it out, we can start to be, come up with sort of more design principles for what are the affordances of being um, in different parts of this space. So with that, I will say thanks. And I'm happy to take any questions.
Yes, over there. You mentioned the issue feedback on crowding. How do you deal with that tension between you do accurate scientific reference, scientifically accurate content, and its intention with everything else that's out there? So, um, it's a it's a continual problem that we have in, in scientific visualization and representation. Uh, I, in, in interactive spaces, some of the advantages are that you can either build that up over time so that people sort of increase in the complexity of those representations. And you can also allow people to sort of turn on and off layers um, so that they can sort of um, be able to represent the cell as it actually is, and they can take away those layers as they sort of want to um, be involved in particular tasks. Um, I, I, you, can, you can either build up the layers and you can also build down the layers as well. So there's the idea that once you sort of have a, a reasonable representation of the cell, um, you can sort of take away some of those layers, and sometimes taking away after you've after you've represented it correctly allows people to sort of be building upon that knowledge they previously have. I don't know if any of you guys want to add to that. We talked about this stuff the other <laughs> and and the the, the the affordances of VR, the fact that you can um, display such rich um, environments, also presents some issues in terms of the level of, of cognitive load you want to provide for a learner, especially for an office. And so what Eric is describing is, is right, is that uh, but we, we try to do it in a way that a scientist would do. So how would a scientist approach just wanting to um, look at mitochondria? Well, there's actually something called the mitotracker. Where, so if we can infuse those types of tools into the game, then they're not only learning about the cell, but they're also learning about some of the scientific processes. But it's, it is always a challenge. I'd like to say we solve that problem, but we are grappling with that problem. Other questions? Yep. <laughs> so you did crowded, yay. Um, it, it's still very peaceful. So what about nanoscale violence? Nanoscale? The, the nanoscale is an immensely violent universe. So sure. you've turned it on, <laughs> on, on, on speed. Sure. Yeah, no, I think, I, think, I think the sort of further we get away from um, scales that people have experience with, I think the more important it is to have these kinds of representations um, because they're very unfamiliar. Uh, and, uh, and to understand what they mean. And, and not only sort of representations on single scales, but representations across multiple scales. So how does something that happens at the nanoscale actually even impact something at the macro scale that we sort of see things at? Um, so being able to represent those kinds of uh, across-scale interactions or across-scale um, uh, phenomena will be really important. Maybe I'm clear. Um, a you look at you know, Harvard's living cell classical video cell content. In addition to the big empty space, it's also the ballistically docking spaceship molecules in you know, Earth orbit, uh, which is completely physical yep. and breaks any intuition for how biology actually works on a molecular level. Have you explored <coughs> in terms of making things jiggle or otherwise sort of trying to capture that? Yeah, that's the idea, the idea of like things happening through Brownian motion is actually, it's, a, it's sort of a, it's sort of a macro level uh, sort of goal of a lot of this other stuff. Is sort of, as I said, our stuff is based on simulations. Um, those simulations are sort of trying, we're trying to base those in addition to the visual representations. We're trying to represent the underlying ways the systems work based on the way that real systems work. So that sort of ha things happening through Brownian motion are a really important part of the way that these systems are designed. Um, that, that happen, that's true of the virtual reality. It's also stuff that we do in, in, uh, in 2D as well. I know you guys have talked about this specific issue. <laughs> how, how much do you want to know? <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. I'll I can let talk you. a little bit about that. Um, so the version of the cell, <clears throat> excuse me, that you saw, is an early prototype that's pretty much static. Uh, so, but we're targeting intro biology at the high school level, which is where they get into cell processes. 
So we want to get beyond what is the structure of the cell and how does the cell function. And we're focusing primarily on uh, central dogma, so DNA to RNA to proteins. And a lot of the animations that we found on YouTube uh, for how different processes work ascribed some intentionality to things, whether it's a, you know, a virus making a beeline for the nucleus or whether it's uh, nucleotides sort of swarming into the RNA and, and piecing uh, themselves together. So we've, we're actually trying to increase the density even beyond what you saw there. There is a little bit of a trade-off with performance. So uh, we don't want the frame rate to get too low because that induces nausea. Um, but we're looking at some hacks that we can do to increase uh, the density, which allows for um, physics-based movement so that when we're assembling RNA, uh, you'd actually have nucleotides that are just sort of swarming all around, and occasionally one of them would like bump into the end of the RNA chain, and if it's the right one, it would attach itself, but making it look much more accidental. Um, we actually have another scale that we're working on that we call the nanoscope scale. So what you saw there, we call the Celeber scale, it's like organelle scale. We're actually gonna be able to zoom in with your virtual uh, nanoscope to see things more at the molecular level. Um, so, and then Brownian motion, we'll have to represent that differently at the different scales. Um, so the things that are at the organelle level probably won't be moving around and, and bouncing quite in the same way that uh, a molecule would uh, with, with Brownian motion. And that's in part, we, we talked to cell biologists <coughs> and that's what they said. They said, oh, you know, at this level you would not see as much Brownian motion as you would at a Well, just so the people don't end up with misconceptions, um, like the living cell has the, the, the walking toad. Mm -hmm. um, the right model of that is it's sort of it's a balloon in a hurricane, which is every place within right. that is, can possibly reach within its tether before there's another step, as opposed to like the donkey and the towing barge. Right. So right. yes, it's less significant, but still, it's immensely violent. Yes. Right, right, and that's why that's one of the reasons why we're always talking to experts is because certainly, I mean, I've I've watched a ton of these videos on YouTube as well, and so like so it, so a couple of things that come to um, that, that are these are valid concerns, and these are things that we are that one of the things that we are doing is is all models are useful. Oh, sorry, all models are wrong. Some models are useful, and no matter what kind of thing we're modeling, we're always thinking about. How are we representing this and how are we making design choices that are as, as representing the uh, system as authentically as possible within the scope of what is it that we are trying to communicate? When you build a model, that's always what you're trying to do. You're trying to figure out, okay, how do I represent this in a realistic way so that other people can understand it and that I can help other, I can better understand it. When it comes to um, the, one of the things that scientists do, in fact, this is um, just the Nobel Prize actually was awarded for this kind of Slowing, lowering the temperature, so you actually slow the Brownian motion, so you can actually isolate these um, things a little, a little bit more of a, um, and easier to, to isolate this. So these are the kind of things we're looking into. But absolutely, this is this is the stuff that we're thinking about all the time. From there, what what do you see as the main limitations of today's VR and AR tech that's applied to education, um, and in particular, any ways in which those differ from kind of so um, a lot of that has to do with true orchestration of, uh, in, in a practical sense, the orchestration of a classroom full of kids. Um, so 
you know, if you have one person and you have a room scale sort of thing and it's tethered to a computer, you know, you can clear out a space and you can do that. And that works reasonably well. Um, when you have, want to have 35 kids doing that, the amount of space you would need to do that is, is immense. <laughs> you know, maybe you could do that in the gymnasium, um, but you couldn't get power to everything. <laughs> so, so trying to think about how you actually scale that so that everybody's invested in that is, um, is, a, is a current challenge. Um, it seems like mobile VR sort of will help us solve that problem. So whether it's, um, uh, but, 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 but the, as I mentioned earlier, the current trade-off is that, is that um, the amount of interactivity is less, the degrees of, um, uh, you know, that you, you get from, from moving your head is, are fewer. Um, all those things are, uh, the resolution is lower. Um, so all those things are current trade-offs against that. Right now, what most schools have is like, you know, a few maybe Oculus or HTC Vives. And they might have a lot of Google Cardboard uh, setups, uh, but the the technology seems to be rapidly advancing. And the sort of we're you know within a year of being able to get decent mobile VR, um, and I think the sort of good mobile VR is probably maybe a couple of years beyond that. Um, so I think that's probably the major barrier that I see. I don't know if any of you who've worked on this. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that. So um, inside out tracking is is really key. So then we can get rid of. The, the PC, we can get rid of uh, the, the base station, the, like the lighthouses or whatever, then you don't have to cordon off a corner of the room, uh, and then people don't need more space than their body needs. So you could have 30 students in a classroom all uh, wearing headsets and moving around the room uh, if you had inside-out tracking. And then, you know, it may be mobile, it's also likely, I think, more likely to be standalone. Uh, uh, VR, so it's not tethered, but it's, it doesn't have a phone in it, although it probably shares a lot of the same hardware with mobile VR. Um, six degrees of freedom, probably, I think three degrees of freedom is uh, an intermediate step. Um, tracked hands, but probably more than hands. Uh, I think eventually we'll, we'll get to, I mean, we already have it with the, the Vive sensors that you can just put on anything, uh, but we'll also get different like gloves or uh, clothing or things that you can wear, probably you could put trackers on your feet um, and have more of a sense of embodiment. Um, I think the cost is a barrier that's coming down quickly from, you know, $800 for the headset plus you need a PC to the Oculus Go is like $200, I think, and it will come down uh, even faster. There's, there's another barrier as well um, for the current hardware, for most of the current hardware, which is if you're a teacher and all of your kids now have headsets and virtual reality displays, how do you get them to come back to the classroom to discuss things? Um, so uh, some of that may be done within virtual reality. The teacher could appear within there, but that, that even now that's hard to orchestrate something that you could do that. Freeze everything. So there's some, some software barriers to sort of making this sort of scalable within a, within a classroom as well. One more thing I'll just mention. Uh, foveated rendering and eye tracking, uh, I think, will uh, bridge the gap a little bit between the performance capabilities of, of mobile hardware and the current like tethered to a desktop PC as soon as you can just focus the you know high polygon or high resolution in the, the, the center of the phobia. So speaking about the teacher, you know, sort of how do you work with teachers to integrate uh, that technology and, and those applications into the curriculum? So um, I'll, I'll answer sort of more generally and then, and then t let, turn it over to you guys who have worked with some of the teachers on this specific one. Um, so uh, 
So some of this comes some of this comes from sort of the way we've worked with teachers in the past. So we've worked with teachers from the beginning here to try to help them think about help help they help us think about how they can use this in the classroom from the beginning as part of our design-based research. Um, and part of it is trying to help them sort of solve problems that they actually have. Um, uh, but, but, but part of it is helping, helping up, having us help them think about how they can actually fit this into the flow of classes. Um, early on in the technologies, much like we did with um, some of the AR stuff, we sort of put that to the side. We say like, hey, the practical problems are right now you need a PC and an attentive headset. Um, we're going to have to sort of accommodate that, even though we know that's not ideal in the current classroom. We're going to make that work because we know that the, the years, uh, uh, sort of the time when sort of the practical issues get solved with sort of mobile or, or self-contained VR are a couple of years away. So we're willing to work through some of those short-term problems. It's a lot like we did, as I mentioned before, like with pocket PCs where you had either Wi-Fi or GPS. We knew at some point in the near future those problems were going to be solved. We could solve that through sort of hacks in the, in the interim. We could provide hardware. Now everybody has a smartphone. Um, so it's kind of like that we think about that with, with virtual reality sort of being on that rapid time horizon right now. I don't know if you guys have specific feedback from some of the teachers you've worked with. Yeah, I mean, we are, um, so a piece of this is what um, what we mentioned is the design-based research is that we're always going out and seeing feasibility, always getting people's um, ideas and feedback as we're going along. One of the things we've been doing is collecting stories about people who are using virtual reality already. Um, and and the, the, the district of Fitchburg, you would never believe it, but it has some, some really proactive um, teachers and um, technology coordinators. Um, a lot of what people are using right now is the 360 of field trips um, because Google Expeditions is widely available. And um, it's, it, they are a lot, they're definitely, um, the interactivity is low, but they are very, they can be very powerful experiences. And what the people in Fitchburg like to say is, um, we live an hour from the beach and most of our kids have never seen the ocean. And so they're now, but with the virtual field trips, they're able to go to, they're able to study Af um, Africa and, and use virtual reality field trips to go to Africa. They're able to study Alaska and, and see that with um, a 3D reality <coughs> experience. Um, and a lot of history teachers use that too. Um, then we found a teacher, actually a teacher came up to Eric after he gave one of his talks and said, you know, hey, I'm doing this um, initiative in Ohio. This teacher in his 12th grade technology class has um, purchased 15 Oculus Rifts and his students are going out and curating educational applications in VR. They go through a series of kind of, they, they try it out and then they, he's outfitted Oculus Rifts in backpacks. And it's the high school students who work with teachers in the district and they plan what apps, they, they suggest apps, they plan what apps they want to use, they go out, they deliver, they work with the students. Really interesting model. And so um, I'm happy, we're happy to share some more of that. Um, these ideas, collecting ideas, because teachers are doing this and there's a ton of interest in it. Um, one of the things that teachers are interested in is actually having students author content. That's a few years off, but you know, really listening, what, what is out there, what do people want to use this for? The other people who are really interested in this are the doctors that we've talked to, um, using this for medical records, using this to, uh, for medical education, beyond surgery, there's a lot of surgery. But, so the answer is we're always, we're always asking and seeing what's out there, how are people doing this, because that helps inform our the other, the other part comes from the, the collaborative part of it. So um, like, like I mentioned, the uh, 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 the Nobody Explodes game. Uh, so 
our vision is to sort of allow some people to be in VR and some people not be in VR. So in, the, in Clever, um, some people, there, there's a, a person who's a navigator who's on a tablet. They play a role in the, in the game. So if they're not in VR, there's a person who's in VR. We can think about different kinds of ratios of people that are in VR to not being in VR. That does two things. One is it sort of limits the amount of hardware you need for that. It also allows, since the navigator is in, in, in communication with the person in VR, it does help with that communication issue with, instead of everybody being in VR, the teacher can say, all right, navigators, you know, stop, stop what you're doing, and that can stop the other person as well. So, um, and, and it means some people just, at least with the current technology, aren't comfortable in VR um, physically. Uh, and so it also allows those people to, be, to have significant roles without having to be in VR. Yep. So it sounds like you guys do some work in interview with experts to sort of find the fun. And I'd love to get a sense of how do you guys approach that conversation? Because that sounds infinitely more nuanced than the bullet point we've sort of explored together. So it's like, yeah, so how do we so how do we find the fun with brownie motion? <laughs> whatever it is. So I mean, I, I really, it really is a question of, of when we talk to those experts, it's like, what, what, sort of, what, what are you excited about with your own work? Um, so in many cases, it's sort of like a cutting edge sort of thing. Um, but it's about, so then the conversation becomes, well, what got you into this in the first place? What, was it, what made you excited about this? When was a time where you sort of stayed up late at night and you couldn't go to sleep because you were thinking about a problem? How do you, how do you, um, you know, when you think about uh, Brownian motion, what's the metaphor you make in your own head? You might not visualize it like it looks like in the real world. What's the metaphor you use in your head? And how do you think about that metaphor? Um, these are the kinds of questions we ask people to sort of have them sort of make, make uh, able to express what they what they what they're so excited about in their field, um, and when you really get experts on this, they they you know getting them to talk about this is not an issue. Getting to stop talking about it is an issue because <laughs> uh, because experts are really excited about this. I don't know if you guys have other stories from some of the people you've interviewed. We had one expert come and we we had slaughtered her. We were like, okay, forty five minutes because we know we had a hard time you know getting her in. She's an expert in cystic fibrosis, and you know and. At two hours, <laughs> we were like, we have a week's time for us to do other things. And it was, but it was fascinating. We talked to a virologist who, who talks about the cell and viruses in the cell like it was a video game. I mean, the way, just like, just exactly what you're talking about. This is a violent place where there's so much going on. And it's inspiring to talk to these folks. And what's amazing is how they are, um, they have these really super busy schedules, they make time to come in, and then they want to, they play the simulation, and they're like, okay, when can we come back? When can, when can we get the update? Because they're excited about this too, and so that helps fuel us as well. But uh, yeah, and, and we're actually documenting this, and we're happy to share some of that documentation as well, in, in terms of our design process, Annie's working on it. But happy to we're happy to share and talk additionally about any of this. Uh, you can contact, if you go to Erica, you can contact me or Dan, um, my email is really easy to remember. I'm Meredith at MIT.edu. <laughs> Nobody else asks, so I got it. So um, feel free to send me an email, and we'll definitely connect you with and start answer some of the questions in a little bit more depth. Do you capture video of those interviews? Excuse me. Do you capture video of those interviews? Uh, we have we do detailed notes. We don't capture interview videos. Yeah, yeah, of the interviews. No. That's it. It's interesting. It's an interesting thought. It'll be its own study in itself. We do. They are covered under IRB. We ask them to, you know, for their consent to share their um, opinions about it. But we don't, you know, That's getting that information is a bottleneck in this whole pipeline of trying to make the content better. Yeah, that's true. Any other questions? Yes. 
so high resolution displays are coming hopefully you know end of this year. Um, educational impacts and eye tracking with it. So you mentioned foveated rendering. Um, the, the potential of ah you're looking at this, you must be interested in that. Let me adapt my content to follow your interest as it moves around. Have you been exploring or thinking about sort of what how education changes over the next three quarters? I think one of the major affordances of eye tracking is actually social presence. Because even if you have an avatar, and even if you're in a shared space with another person who has an avatar, if you can't see their eyes moving or their facial expressions, they don't feel real. So I think that will help convince people that they're actually in a space with another person. Uh, and beyond that, it'll be uh, yeah, lots of interesting metrics, data, analytics, tracking about that. Some of it will be looped back into uh, you know, AI uh, computer characters who are giving you uh, hints or um, Have you explored? that kind of thing. Have you been doing any experiments with sort of sidekicks, computer characters, to help the learning process? Yeah, so for Clever, uh, we're working on a tutorial system that I don't know if it's totally new, but I haven't seen anything quite like it. Um, because we have people on different platforms playing in parallel and learning in parallel to play, so we have someone in VR with the Rift and we have someone uh, on a tablet or a laptop, and they have different tools and different interfaces to navigate. So there's segments of the tutorial that are individual, but then eventually it converges and they're collaborating. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're talking right now actually with Annie every Thursday about like tutorial and narrative and what are the characters and their personalities and what types of uh, interactions do you have with them. And we're, and we're building on the research that's out there. There are a lot of people who are doing interesting things um, at different labs around the country. And so we're communicating with them and um, using what they've done and building on that. We're seeing really interesting stuff going on right here at MIT. Um, and so it's, it's fun to, to talk to them and to share ideas. Um, and, and build on what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean there's, there's a fair, a fair literature on sort of intelligent agents, and um, even in specifically in educational environments, that, that literature isn't very, um, isn't very promising so far. <laughs> Everybody sort of like has bad, um, bad memories of Clippy, um, and that's, <laughs> that sort of um, has made people shy away from it for, for quite some time. Um, but I think the fact is that the fact is that those those agents weren't that intelligent was the problem. Um, and now that we're actually getting much better at that, that those agents can actually be really useful. Sorry, question back here. Yeah. Uh, do you think like uh, these innovations uh, will lead us to, is a different way to learn? Is a way to learn different things? Is a mix of both? Um, how to try to escape from the framework that the education has now and hasn't changed for many, many, many years. Um, I don't know. So. Yeah, so I mean, that, uh, I'll go sort of back to the beginning of my talk. I mean, that's, that, that's really where we want to head. I mean, so yes, yes, you can sort of learn similar things in new ways um, with some of these things. That's OK. Um, I'd say next is sort of like to learn, learn new things in new ways. Um, we think that these technologies en enable us to sort of teach and learn things that we couldn't before. That's where we think the really big value is. Um, but really, sort of changing learning altogether is really where we want to go. And um, that's uh, I mentioned sort of the principles of game design and things like that. Um, 
some of that stuff sort of is in turn derived from uh, many of you may know Jim G's book, um, What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning Literacy, um, sort of uh, the book that sort of spawned the sort of um, modern era of educational games. He was actually looking at um, what people learn just by playing commercial video games, mostly in his case, violent video games. Uh, and um, his goal is to sort of distill some sort of learning design principles from, from designers of good, what he called learning experiences through these games. Um, and his goal was not necessarily to sort of, his goal wasn't necessarily to spawn the era of educational games, which is what he did. His goal was to sort of spawn a better era of um, educational learning environment design. Um, so these same principles that I mentioned about multiple goals and feedback and all that sort of stuff, that's what we should be designing into, all, that's what our learning experiences should look like. It shouldn't be about sort of like a single goal and one form of feedback that you have within that, you know, a test um, and one way to accomplish that goal. And that there's, there's a lot of things wrong with our, with our learning systems that sort of are reflected in some of those design principles. Um, and same with resonant games, like, resident, like most learning environments don't count for the fact that there's a whole learner. This kid is a student in my class for 45 minutes and that's all I care about in terms of most learning design. Obviously teachers, teachers think much more deeply than that, but they're constrained by the um, context of the system that they're in, where there's a kid for 45 minutes, there's very specific goals that they have. And so for many of them, it's, it's really, I, I just gotta teach them the content for those 45 minutes, four times a week or whatever it is. And so we really do think about ways that we can sort of um, spawn some changes in the educational system. The educational system in most places um, is, is sort of locked um, in for many sort of, uh, many systemic reasons. Uh, clearly, it, clearly it is in this case, it's very resistant to change, probably one of the most, re uh, most resistive systems that we have in this country. Um, this is sort of a bigger issue than I, which I, I'm gonna give you like two seconds worth, but it's a much longer conversation to have. And this, you know, we've, we've thought many times that this is clearly the way, you know, um, Seymour Papert talked about how the computer was gonna blow up the school, you know, it was gonna really change things fundamentally, and it hasn't. And you know, if you go into schools now, other than the fact that they're writing on a, on a, uh, a, a computer tablet instead of a stone tablet, it looks pretty much the same <laughs> as it did many, many years ago. Um, and if you look at the ways that, you know, it's Google Docs, they're sort of, they're used for efficiency purposes within schools. They're not really used to sort of change um, even what students are learning, or even if, I would even say how they're learning. It's really just sort of using it with a slightly different medium. Um, uh, but, and, and so I'm not gonna sort of try to make the claim that in fact that VR is gonna really change the, the way things are gonna go in schools because it, it probably won't. Um, I think if anything is gonna change it, it's the, it's the sort of changing nature of, um, of work. Uh, and so there's a panic um, in some places uh, about sort of the fact that we're gonna, most jobs are gonna be displaced by artificial intelligence and machine learning in some number of years. Um, uh, I, I think some, to some extent that panic is, is overblown. It's, we, I think we will have different kinds of jobs. Um, so that's, but that's a reason to make sure that we're doing this because in fact, um, the nature of the kinds of things we need to do are fundamentally different than we have now. Uh, and so if, if people wanna sort of have um, careers, um, wanna have um, livelihood and wanna sort of participate in society, then you're gonna need to different fundamentally different kinds of skills than we're teaching now in schools. Um, and, uh, and what machine learning I think will be used a lot for is as, as um, people are need to, know how to move, need to know how to work with it. Um, it will be present in, in, in lots of jobs that people have, or maybe every job that people have, like, like computers are now. Um, so people will need to learn those kinds of skills that they need to, to, to interact with those kinds of things, which involves sort of a, a sort of perhaps a potentially deeper understanding of the way the technology works. Um, so I think that perhaps that sort of fundamental shift that we already see happening now 
um, will sort of make us change our system of the way that people learn. Um, we're starting to see that appear in some of the standards that we see right now. Um, I mentioned knowledge, skills, and practices. Knowledge, skills, and practices are, are reflected in the next generation science standards, which are the sort of current national science standards, which are, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't really see that reflected at all in the, in the standards. Now, the way that gets manifest in school is still sort of pretty rudimentary, but I do see that those kinds of um, uh, pressures that we see in the, in the workplace ultimately trickling down to school. Um, and perhaps, you know, if it takes us 10 years to make that shift, I think we're going to be a little late because the kids who are going to be growing up are going to be moving into a workplace um, where that's already happened. Um, and we will see a sort of a wave of, of unemployment at that point because people just won't be ready for the opportunities that exist. There'll be jobs out there, but they're not going to be ready for them. Yep. Um, so following up on that, uh, there's a concept of a selective sweep, and you have submutation that's so beneficial that it spreads through the population, as does everything nearby. So here comes VR, and one can easily imagine that it's going to become pervasive in education. Do you see any role for trying to pee back things on top of that? To take like a silly example, the color of the sun is pervasively misrepresented in educational content. So you try and get VR, you put some effort to get VR apps to get it right, and suddenly you have a new baseline. Yeah, I mean, so um, uh, this is a dated reference given that we're in virtual reality now, but people called it uh, years ago, they called it the Trojan mouse. Um, so the idea is that computers are going to come into schools with mice. Uh, and, um, and the fact that we're going to sort of like, our, our goal is not really to get computers in school, our goal is to get sort of fundamental pedagogical change into schools, and computers can be our, our sort of Trojan horse for getting them into schools. So yes, I do think that VR can, can be used in similar ways, and, and to some extent, you know, I sort of, I said that in fact we sort of see uh, primarily sort of really sort of mundane uses of computers in schools, but in some places it has made a difference. So we look at Scratch um, uh, from Mitch Resnick uh, on campus, and we see the way that's used in schools. And that, in many cases, that really has sort of fundamentally changed the way that kids are using technology in their schools. So we do see some instances of, the, of that sort of Trojan mouse working. I do see that sort of happening through things like uh, virtual reality. And um, I think virtual reality, I think they'll, like, like there were computer labs for a while, I think we're going to sort of see things like that in virtual reality. It's going to be relegated to some place. I think until it gets integrated into the classroom, those changes are really hard to make. Um, so I think it's going to take a while to sort of have virtual reality sort of um, be the, the, the agent of change there. Okay.